0: On today's show, I am talking with Stephen Johnson, the author of Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. There's no better author to make the case that play is a profound driver of future invention than Steve Johnson. His acclaimed and best-selling books, including Where Good Ideas Come From, The Invention of Air, and The Ghost Map, reveal how cutting-edge ideas take shape and offer a long-zoom approach to history. His marvelous book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World, vividly explores how pursuits born from wonder and delight have led to essential breakthroughs in computing, communication, and connecting the world. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Stephen Johnson. Hey, good morning. So this is a really incredible book. Thank you. Let's start off by talking about maybe some backstory. You've written numerous other books. Uh, What led to this one?
1: My books have been on a bunch of different topics, but they've, they've shared a kind of theme, particularly recently, uh, of innovation, looking at kind of new ideas and how they change the world. And, and I'd done this book in this PBS series called How We Got to Now right. that that looked at uh, uh, kind of innovations and, and their kind of unlikely surprising effects on, um, uh, on the world around us. And I began to realize that the more I... Uh, kind of dug into all this material, I began, to, I began to realize as I dug into all this material how many interesting a- and important uh, ideas, technologies, scientific breakthroughs actually had their root in a, in a moment or an experience of kind of delight and and wonder and uh, amusement. Things that started as toys and games actually ended up leading to breakthrough ideas in science and in technology and in politics even. Um, And so I decided to kind of step back and take a broad survey of that history, and and the result was Wonderland.
0: I feel like I've read things about people that are really brilliant brilliant in technology and film, and a lot of their ideas, I remember hearing something about Steven Spielberg's mom saying she would just let him um, take a camera and go out and, you know, create. And I I I remember, I don't think he went to college. She just, you know, let him explore that creative uh, instinct of his.
1: You know there's a there's an interesting correlation actually not just humans but other animals um, the the more uh, a given organism devotes its childhood infancy and childhood to play like behavior um, and humans do this on average more than any other species that we know mm-hmm. um, the, the longer that kind of play time is in in childhood the more Open-ended and flexible and adaptable, the intelligence of the adult. So, okay. I- in a sense, what that what that tells you is, if you're trying to prepare for a world where everything is very predictable and there's just a set of fixed strategies for getting by, mm-hmm. um, then you don't need play. <laughs> just right. just learn the <laughs> learn yes. the strategy and then go do it and execute that and you'll be fine. But if you're trying to prepare an organism for a world where change is inevitable, where the future is hard to predict, and you're going to have to think on your feet. Play is actually a really great way to learn, because you're, what, you, what, what makes things playful, what makes a game, for instance, seem like a game, is you never really know what's going to happen. Yes. Every time you play it, it's a little different, and you have to kind of evolve a strategy uh, on the fly. And even better, if you're designing your own game and inventing the whole you know imaginary world as, as kids like to do mm-hmm. um, then you're being really creative and so thinking about that both in terms of history but also in terms of parenting and 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 schools, I think is a there's a really important insight there about the importance of play.
0: I think parents you know we forget what it was like to be childlike and to play, and it's so important. I know growing up, I went to Montessori and um late years later, I would just I would be all by myself and most people would say, you know, isn't she lonely or you know doesn't she want to be with people? And I would just find things in my imagination or in my surroundings. And I think it's a really important skill to have.
1: Yeah, I agree. And the, the other thing that, that's a little bit more collaborative, um, I actually wrote about this uh, a, a piece short, kind of online after the book came out in hardcover last year. There, there's, a whole, there's a whole chapter on games and, and a bunch of fun stories about the history of board games, particularly the history of Monopoly. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. But but just to this point about childhood, I I had this wonderful experience um, a couple years ago designing, spending the summer with my then nine year old designing a a board game together Mm. and dreaming up the topic and dreaming up how the rules, what the rules were going to be and trying to figure out when should we use the dice? You know, should we use cards? Mm -hmm. um, You know, what are your objectives? And. And that process of designing something like that is a really rich intellectual experience because you have to build a hypothesis of how the game is going to work. You have to experiment with different models. You play it the first time, and you're like, wow, this game is incredibly boring. We thought it was going to be much more fun, but it's too easy or it's too hard or whatever it is. And then you have to tinker with it. And it's really like the scientific method, right? You're building right. a hypothesis about this complicated system and testing it and refining it based on the feedback. Um, but a nine year old doesn't know that they're learning the scientific method, right? They just yes. think they're they're, right. they're making up a game with dad, and right. it's really fun, you yes. know so I think that's a great kind of exercise for people to and I think that's a great thing to do in schools too.
0: Oh, I completely agree. I actually believe because I was not a very good student growing up, and I was telling my daughter because history can be very boring, they hand you a textbook, they want you to read this huge chapter, it's thirty pages, and your eyes are crossing. I think it would be a great idea if we took that content and made it into something that was a little bit more interactive and fun, maybe game-like.
1: Oh, I, I've, that's been a big thing I've been arguing for years. Is oh, yeah. Imagine teaching the American Revolution, where the primary mechanism you're teaching is that there's a kind of a simulation of it, like a SimCity-like game. You bet. And you, you can control the military forces on either side, you can control the economic systems, you can do all these things. Now... You know, one of the things that happens is sometimes the British win. <laughs> and so you ha- you still have to remind people, you know, uh, here's what actually happened in history, so you know that. But your understanding of the dynamics of that system in time, that period, yes. what it was like to be alive then, what the tensions were, what the forces were, um, would be far richer. Oh, completely. Than, and kids would run to school to be able to play this oh, game. You know, I you'd agree. have to tear them away from the screen. <laughs> I
0: agree. I mean, there's such a difference. So... You have – I want to touch on these really captivating sections you have in your book, fashion and shopping, music, taste, illusions, games, and public space. How did you choose these?
1: Well, it was a long process of kind of tinkering with different ideas I knew. I had written – years ago in grad school, I had – studied a little about the early department stores in in the 19th century. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great story about when the first department stores open in Paris, there's this uh, outbreak of kleptomania, basically, um, where these well-to-do women, uh, uh, all of them women, interestingly, have this, even though they can afford to buy things, they get kind of overwhelmed by this experience of these stores. It was unlike anything any human being had ever seen before. They're so lavish, the Marché and stores like that. Mm-hmm. And so they start stealing all these goods, <laughs> and no one can understand it. They're like, "What?" it becomes known as as the department store disease. Um, uh. And so I knew that, that was there's that story, which ends up having a whole host of interesting implications. And so I, start, I knew there was a, probably a good chapter on fashion and shopping, and I'd written b- about games before, so I knew mm-hmm that games w- would be rich. I knew there's a long history connection between games and computing. Um, and so I had a couple of kind of toeholds in there, yes. and then I, I just you know, dug around and, and followed a bunch of different threads in different directions and eventually came up with this, those six.
0: I was really intrigued by uh, your section on garment design. My dad was in the fashion business in Manhattan. I remember going to his uh, warehouse in Brooklyn. Um, tell me about that, that section.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, in, I'm in, actually in Brooklyn right now.
0: Oh. <laughs> um,
1: the, uh, yeah, I mean, there's an incredible story about calico and chintz um, coming to, really to London um, in, in the uh, late 1600s. These cotton fabrics from India that were both soft, in a, in a way that cotton, obviously, is softer than wool and other garments. Um, but also, it, the the Indian dyers had, had come up with this technology for, and kind of procedure for dyeing the calico that enabled it to have these beautiful, vibrant patterns that wouldn't um, fade away when you washed them. That was, a, that was a big breakthrough. But it was all about the pleasure of the feeling of the fabric and the, yes. and the patterns of it. And, and it, people just went crazy for it. Um, and that led to, you know, things like the East India Company um, making a vast Importing these fabrics from India, but it also led to this giant backlash, which is quite similar in, in some ways to political <laughs> movements we've had recently in the United States, mm-hmm. where all of these the kind of traditional uh, wool industries of England and Scotland um, were losing all their business to these overseas imports um, that these well-to-do women were kind of you know, spending all their money on, and so there was this huge public outcry against these women. They were called calico madams. There there was something kind of scandalous and sensual about their obsession with these fabrics. And uh, all these angry poems and plays, you know, (laughs) screeds, pamphlets were published against them. And for a while, um, calico and chintz were actually banned um, from England. Uh, But it also nonetheless led to a number of other inventors who kind of took the other approach, which is they said, hey, what if we made some technology that would enable us to create these fabrics here. And that was literally the birth of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that was really what drove the the inventors of the early industrial age to, you know, almost all the major industrial sites were textile sites of one form or another, many of them uh, making cotton products. And so when you, it's in a sense when you ask, where did the Industrial Revolution come from? On some level, yeah, it came from the inventors who came up with these technologies. But another thing that was driving it was just the beauty and the Soft kind of pleasure of wearing and looking at cotton mm-hmm. uh, and calico and, and, and chintz. Um, so that's a you know if you don't tell that part of the story, you're not having a full account of what drove industrialization.
0: You know, I'm listening to you and I when I was reviewing your book, I'm thinking this is an incredible history lesson to all the different technological advances. To you know, looking at the typewriter and then uh, the double lens magic lantern. I mean, you must. Never get bored because you're a very inquisitive person.
1: Well, this is this was a you know this was this, a fun project on two levels. It was a, it was really fun to research, and in part because it was about fun and the history of fun. Yes. Um, but and there's so many crazy. I mean, the typewriter is a really interesting story because it it uh, it's one of these weird technologies. And someday I'm going to write a longer piece about this. I just kind of allude to it in the mm-hmm. book. Um, it's one of these weird technologies that arrived too late. It 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 should have been. T- it was technically possible to invent a typewriter in like 1600, but really? no one figured out how to do it until uh 1870 or so. Oh. And when they did, what inspired them um was music, was musical keyboards. We didn't have keyboards for, you know, creating text. We mm-hmm. we had um but we'd had musical keyboards for creating notes basically for creating song. Uh for almost 2000 years i mean it's like 1700 years or something like that um and of course you know we in in the centuries before the typewriter we had the pianoforte and the harpsichord and then the piano and so on and so uh and the when people finally invented the harpsichord or the the typewriter that it was called the the writing harpsichord you know it was a direct port <laughs> from music oh. um And so it's one of the other ways in which music, there's a whole chapter on music, inspired, you know, think about how important keyboards are, you know, alphanumeric keyboards are to our life today and to to the computer age. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would be almost impossible to have modern computers without keyboards.
0: So if people want to get in touch with you, I mean, you've written a ton of other books, you know, How how We Got to Now, Where Good Ideas Come From, The Invention of Air. By the way, that's a really interesting title, The Invention of Air. Could you Yeah, you, you that's maybe talk?
1: my favorite title of, of all of them. It. It's a book about it's my version of a book about the American founding fathers and this one renegade British radical chemist wow. <laughs> named Joseph Priestley. Wow. <laughs> who was the first guy to <laughs> I, isolate oxygen for the first time, and so that's where the uh, the title comes from.
0: I I'm just curious, what did you study in college?
1: I studied something called semiotics uh, at oh. Brown, which was, a, which was basically kind of a media studies program by the time I got there with mm-hmm. a little bit of philosophy. And then I, and then I studied English Lit in, at grad school. Um, so, but it, and that was a lot of history in that, in that course. I was studying kind of the, the novel and industrialization in the city.
0: And you, uh, you're a host and co-creator of the PBS and BBC series, How We Got to Now. I feel like this book... Could be part of something too, something very visual.
1: It, w- it would be a great show. Yeah, we, we we would we we actually did a fun animated uh, TED talk for it. Um, that's like eight minutes long, and it's it's a kind of different format for TED, and it's very it's itself very playful um, that people can you know. They,
0: yeah, where can we see that?
1: If you go to TED mm-hmm. and search for Stephen Johnson, it's one. I have a couple of TED talks, but okay. it's the most recent one.
0: Yeah. Well, I know we have to wrap up, but where can people find out more about you?
1: StephenBerlinJohnson.com. Berlin Berlin is my middle name, so it's like the city in Germany. Um, Stephen with a V.
0: I bet you have more books planned.
1: (laughs) I do. I have one already done and two more I'm working on.
0: (laughs) How long did this one take?
1: You know, total of about two years.
0: Wow, I think that's fast. Maybe maybe a little bit more. Yeah. Unbelievable. Stephen, thank you so much for calling in the show. This has been wonderful. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Take care. That was author Stephen Johnson calling in to talk about his book, Wonderland. How Play Made the Modern World If you missed any part of our conversation and is up on my show blog, get the funkoutshow.kuci.org. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at moms M O M Z underscore rock.